tried to get over you I tried to find something new But all I could ever do Was fill my time Try to go somewhere old To search for my pot of gold But all I could ever hold inside of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Right, everyone, we are back for another proper episode of this show. This is not a side series or a bonus episode. All hands on deck, red alert. We are doing a proper Paul McCartney 
album discussion. Last time we went through the 1997 near masterpiece that was Flaming Pie, and we now find ourselves four years further down the lonely road to discuss Paul's second album after gaining newfound popularity with the Beatles anthology. Yes, folks, we are going to tackle 2001's Driving Rain. Oh, yeah, we're going to fucking do it. We have left behind the comfortable, near-indisputable era of greatness that was Flaming Pie, and now we're going to, you know, enter some, some murkier waters, a disputable era, you might say. Driving Rain heralds the beginning of the awkward 2000s phase where McCartney was struggling to find chart success, pop culture relevancy, and quite simply his place in this new world order. A world of fancy new tech, new music, new trends, new airport security measures, and most importantly, a world without the love of his life. Yeah, folks, as depressing as some of the Flaming Pie talk got, well... Let's just say that this first of the three episodes goes not one, but 20,000 steps further. I urge you to strap yourselves in, because this is going to be one hell of a downer. Today we're going to be covering the death of Linda McCartney, Paul's introduction to Heather Mills, and the September 11th attacks on New York City. Oh my gosh, I know, right? I mean, we've also got some other things like his induction in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and a couple of other little side projects between 97 and 2001. But yeah, I'm going to do my best to keep this one light whilst also being respectful of the material, you know? Don't say I didn't warn you, folks. But yeah, in all seriousness, I'm genuinely very excited to do this episode. As I always say, every time I do one of these album reviews and despite being totally wrong each and every time and being almost wholly vindicated this is another work by Paul McCartney where I went in with a boatload of trepidation I mean I don't think I would be overstating it by reporting that this album is widely disregarded possibly even hated by swaths of the McCartney fan base and knowing that going in certainly coloured my experience with the album as a whole my expectations were lower than a deep, deep feeling, and whilst that definitely meant I was always naturally going to be more positive towards the album, I did feel the return of that obnoxious feeling I felt for both Pipes of Peace and Off the Ground, where I knew I was going to have to go against the grain and give this album a chance. Which is what I did, precisely. My relationship with this album may not be up there with Venus and Mars or Ram or Band on the Run, but very few albums are. And I would be lying if I didn't say that this album isn't fucking packed. Wall to wall with classic McCartney melodies, memorable moments, and some of my favourite songs in his entire catalogue. Yes, I am going there. But we're not here to talk about the album itself yet. We're going to talk about the prehistory, the context, if you will. But before we can even do that, we've got something even more heartbreaking and demoralising than any of the previously mentioned topics. we got to crack on with the... Housekeeping! Starting off, do we have any news for today? Yes, we do. And the first one is very interesting indeed. Peter, the Get Back Disney Plus Jackson, has another film project in the works. 
centering around the Beatles. Now, we haven't had any detail on this whatsoever, but we know Paul and Ringo are involved, and we know that it's probably not going to be a documentary. It's probably going to be a live-action film of some sort, and that it's going to be completely different to the Got Back docu-series. Now, there's all sorts of speculation in the air at the moment. A lot of people are hoping that Jackson is going to do the definitive Beatles biopic. That would be very interesting indeed. Some people are wondering if it's going to be based on solo years stuff, perhaps, maybe not. All we know is that Peter Jackson is doing another Beatles film with no specifics as of yet. We will be keeping you up to date with this in the future. Who's not excited about this? I'm terribly excited for this. You know, Peter Jackson is not only the guy who did the Get Back series, but he's also an artisan of my childhood. The, the, the Lord of the Rings films and his King Kong adaptation were incredibly important to me growing up, and having him be so relevant in my life to this day is always a treat, and I know whatever he's going to do, it's going to be awesome. Hopefully it just doesn't take four years to create like the last one. Also, there are some unsubstantiated rumours doing the rounds online that the Back to the Egg archive re-release set is going to be released soon. Also, they apparently there's talks at MPL whether they're going to be releasing London Town and Back to the Egg together like they did with Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway, possibly with a bonus disc. Uh, apparently the sources say that they don't know whether they're going to be doing this and they might just release them separately, who knows. But yeah, they are, there, are, there are murmurings in the water, there are rumblings that these long-awaited archive re-releases are coming out soon. Also something I heard on one of these videos talking about these possible archive re-releases is that they, in a way, are meant to be collaborative efforts with Linda McCartney's photography and so anything after her death likely will not be getting an archive re-release. Now if that's true that's a terrible shame because you know there are so many albums with so much bonus content and room for improvement that could be put out and we would buy them all. I'd love a Driving Rain re-release. I'd love hey, let's do an archive release of McCartney 3, fuck it, let's put it out next year, you know. You know what I mean, though, folks, come on. The whole archive has to be done. It just it doesn't look right, it's not going to make sense if they don't do the entire catalogue. Come on, Paul, please don't stop it at Flaming Pie. Come on. Anyway, that's enough of the news. Let's go through the plugs. We've got no emails today, but if you do have anything to say to me on Paul or nothing about Driving Rain, about the podcast, about Paul McCartney, anything and anything you want to say, I want to read it out. So yeah, if you want to get in contact with the show, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on our Twitter at McCartneyPod. Check out the blog at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, YouTube is the only place you can check out new episodes of Macca in Your Attic, my latest one being with the lovely Skylar Moody, who I was also with on Ken Michael's radio show the other day. And Skylar teaches an old man, such as myself, about what TikTok is and how she's integrating Beatles media into that new platform. Very exciting stuff. 
Now, if you want to help out the show right away in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us some form of interaction. Whether it's a like, a tick, a thumbs up, some stars, a nice comment, anything like that always helps out the show massively, gives us you know, a great amount of reach and possibly introduces us to new people and can grow the poor or nothing family. Of course, if you can share or post or send an episode to someone or a group or a page, hey, that would be nice as well. Thank you very much. And if you want to help out directly, then you can consider joining our Patreon page. Yes, as I'm sure you know by now, Patreon is the platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. But it is not just a gimme. It's not just a GoFundMe. You do get your money's worth. You get two days early access to all completed episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get instant access to the Paul or Nothing video feed. So anything I do on Zoom with someone, I'll put straight onto the Patreon, unedited and unfiltered and with the visuals. So you get all of that extra content there. You get instant access to all episodes of Mac It In Your Attic in very much the same way. They just all get instantly put on the Patreons weeks, sometimes months in advance. The same goes for the regular episodes. You get access to lost or bonus or unreleased episodes of Paul or Nothing. Scripts and notes that I produce for the show. And of course you get access to the exclusive Patreon Paul and Think Vlog series where every week or two... I put out a bonus episode of Paul and Think covering a smaller topic that might not make a full episode. Uh, recently, we've been going through all of the songs Paul has and hasn't done live over the years. I'm looking at doing a Flaming Pie concert set list, wish list for the next one, and maybe even one where I go through all of my Paul McCartney and Beatle books. Sadly, not with Joe Wisby, though. Oh, well. Anyway... Folks, if you enjoy Paul or Nothing, you want to help give back to the show, if you want to see the show grow, get me new equipment, get me new product to review, or maybe even allow me to do a fourth time off work, hey, I would greatly appreciate it if you could join our Patreon family, a family that includes people such as John Carp, Brian Brigman, Annie McNeil, Boz76, David Sabursky, Mitzi Carter, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Tuoe, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Broderick Harper, Moji Ryber, Robert Shuley, Richard Driver. Chris Atkinson, Richard Biddington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Lou DiLonardo, Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, Cheryl McCoy, Matt Phillips, and of course, Mr. Percy Thrillington himself. And now that all of the housekeeping is out of the way, it's time to take a little drive in the driving rain. Right, now on to the main part of the show, and with these part ones that we now do, because these episodes are now split into three parts the game that long, we normally cover a quick catch-up, where we go through everything Paul was doing between 1997 and 2001. This is actually going to run over into the next episode, because Paul did so much, but also because a lot of these topics need a lot of detail and time taken to cover them properly. The following stuff is going to be a bit heavy, those with a nervous disposition or heart condition, maybe skip this one. Thank you for the download. But yeah, it's time for us to face what is arguably the ugliest reality in the Paul McCartney story. We could have addressed this in the last episode, but I myself didn't want to face it. But there is no way to avoid it any longer. I'm sure we're going to get through it together. But yeah, we're going to have to say, though, before we go into her untimely passing, I thought it would be nice... If we just 
did a bit of a recap of her life, something we've actually never done on the podcast in full. Linda Louise Eastman was born on the 24th of September 1941 in Scarsdale, New York. She married her first husband, Melville C. Jr., in June of 62, and their daughter, Heather Louise, was born on December 31st, 1962. Linda became a receptionist and editorial assistant for Town and County magazine. During this time, she studied the photography of horses at college in Arizona and became an avid nature hobbyist. Around this time, she also bought her first Leica camera. Then, when Town & Country magazine received an invitation to photograph the Rolling Stones during a record promotion party on a yacht, Linda immediately volunteered to represent the publication, thus starting off her lifelong affair with rock and rock stars. A few months after the, her Rolling Stones shoot, she was allowed backstage at Shea Stadium, where the Beatles had performed. She had gained some valuable experience in celebrity photography and became the unofficial house photographer at Bill Graham's Fillmore East Concert Hall. Amongst the artists she photographed there were Todd Rundgren, Aretha Franklin, Grace Slick, Jimi Hendrix, Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin, Eric Clapton, Simon and Garfunkel, The Who, The Doors, The Animals, John Lennon and Neil Young. On May 15th, 1967, whilst on a photo assignment in London, Eastman met Paul McCartney at the Bag and Nails Club. They got together again the following May in New York whilst McCartney and Lennon were there to inaugurate Apple Records. From this point onwards, they began dating, with Linda being the first person to ever quote-unquote domesticate the wild, cute beetle. Paul became completely enamoured with Linda's unique blend of artistry, intelligence and homeliness, as well as immediately becoming an enthusiastic surrogate father for Heather. They were married in a small civil ceremony at Marleybone Town Hall on March 12th, 1969, and during their 29-year marriage, the McCartneys had three further children, Mary in 1969, Stella in 1971, and James in 1977. As we've already detailed extensively on this podcast in episodes passing, Linda was a crucial force in getting Paul McCartney to start making music again after the dissolution of the Beatles, and she's even name-checked on the first track of the first solo McCartney album, the same album where Paul wrote arguably his greatest dedication to her, Maybe I'm Amazed. After that, Paul and Linda would go on to co-create and co-write Ram, a.k.a. the greatest solo record by a Beatle in history. That also technically isn't a solo album at all, because it's the two of them. But yeah, Linda would go on to become a mainstay in Paul's working life, becoming part of the primary vocal and instrumental trio at the heart of the rock band Wings from 72 to 1980. And her iconic backing vocals and increasingly competent keyboard playing becoming really a part of the the sound of the band you know the reason why we've never had a wings reunion is because there's no linda after wings disbanded she would go on continue working with paul as a vocalist from mccartney 2 all the way up to flaming pie linda was also somewhat of a songstress herself writing many of her own songs either in wings uh, as a solo act, or even as part of Susie and the Red Stripes. All of these songs after her death would go on to be part of the compilation known as Wide Prairie, which we touched on just a couple of episodes ago. In addition to her photography and music, 
Linda was also widely known for her philanthropy, helming a very successful cooking career with several landmark vegetarian cooking books being launched, uh, creating a very popular vegetarian food range, which I still dabble into this day, as well as spearheading several progressive, forward-thinking, conservationist campaigns, particularly highlighting issues such as animal cruelty and animal testing. The impacts of those campaigns are still felt and resonate throughout the world and the market to this day. Linda was an incredible person, not just as a figure in the Paul McCartney story, but in her own story and many other people's stories as well. She's still incredibly missed. The fandom still clings to her, the image of her, the idea of her very tightly. And just no one's got a bad word to say about her, do they? Anyway, as George Harrison once famously said, all things must pass. And Linda McCartney discovered she had breast cancer in December of 1995 after a bout of feeling slightly unwell. She lived for another two years and four months. Danny Fields, a lifelong friend of hers, wrote a biography of Linda and shared the following story about when she was diagnosed. He wrote, In December of 95, Linda called me to tell me that a malignant tumour had been found. Apparently, she'd gone to the doctors and was initially treated for some kind of cold, quote-unquote. Two weeks later, still feeling unwell, they took a trip to London for some additional testing and confirmed the cancer diagnosis. They immediately cut out the lump. According to Mr Field's recollection, she hadn't even had a mammogram. The exact cause of Linda McCartney's cancer is unclear, as with all cancer cases. But some people have even suggested that her vegetarian diet may have been to blame. There are studies that link the excessive intake of both dairy and soy products, as were commonly used in vegetarian foods in the 70s, 80s and 90s, to an increased risk of cancer. Though the unfortunate reality of this, folks, is despite that, you know, with all factors, one in eight women will get breast cancer at some point in their life. And unfortunately, folks, this is before the prominence of the Pink Ribbon campaign, you know, encouraging women to check their breasts constantly for lumps in the same way that men might check their testicles. And, you know, the leaps and bounds we've made in cancer research would have nullified this story. It, it wouldn't have happened if it had happened today. But unfortunately, there weren't as many options for Linda. She did undertake chemotherapy to try and fight the cancer that was still in her body. Whilst it is known that Linda was all about natural medicines, when it came to battling her diagnosis, she did still feel that Western medical practices were giving her the best chance of survival. In an interview with Chrissy Hind that was published in USA Weekend, Paul McCartney stated, We'd learned that there were times when you needed traditional modern medical science, and we opted for that route. However, as the condition got worse, Linda decided that it would be worth trying some alternative medicines back in Arizona. After Paul's work on Standing Stone was complete, with Linda now sporting her distinctive cropped hair and looking noticeably more gaunt, they went back to her former homeland. It was here 
when Linda invited her ex-husband Melvin C and his new partner over for a barbecue. Apparently both Paul and Mel, both whom had been less than cordial in the past, kindly set aside their differences and chatted pleasantries over veggie burgers. Now, whilst we know that the McCartneys went ahead and cut out the main part of the cancer, it is unknown to this day if Linda underwent a full mastectomy. About 35% of breast cancer patients undergo a mastectomy, but her family kept her condition and treatments relatively private. Interestingly enough, though, her daughter Stella McCartney, who is obviously now famous in her own right as a renowned fashion designer, actually designed a line of women's bras for people who have undergone the very same procedure. Maybe not a coincidence. In addition to the chemotherapy, she'd undertaken some extremely painful and invasive bone marrow transplants, as well as giving up her own lifetime vice of smoking marijuana. Though I doubt that that stuff would have done any harm, and even if it did, it was far too late for anything like that to take any real effect. Jesus Christ, though, bone marrow transplants. Fuck, that's, oh my God, the stuff this poor woman went through. Paul and Linda then returned to England, where Paul presented Linda with two Shetland ponies to help cheer her up. They were named Schnoo and Tinsel. Also around this time, Linda, ever the active activist till the end, spent £8,000 to liberate a pack of beagle pups bred especially for medical testing and vivisection. Gotta gotta love that rebellious streak in her. Of course, you know, when she had her diagnosis, that's when she also wrote her final songs and performed them. Uh, The Light Comes From Within, being a particularly rebellious fuck you to her critics, that... When you think about the fact that her you know, cancer diagnosis and the fact that it was not going well inspired that song. It totally adds a new layer of meaning and sadness to the whole song, actually. Because, you know, there were initially optimistic prognosi for Linda, but then it was discovered that the cancer had metastasized into her liver, and from this point, she'd become very pessimistic about her outcome. Also, The continued chemo had even further consequences on Linda's appearance. When referring to her hair loss, Paul said, Eventually, when she realised that even her little crew cut was going to go, she shaved it all off. She looked like a Buddhist monk, very sort of holy. And when speaking of her appetite, McCartney stated, She hardly ever lost her appetite, and you're really supposed to lose your appetite on these things. But Linda was such a lusty person. Right, What are we having for dinner, she said. She was never like an ill person. Then the couple flew back to Tucson, Arizona at the end of March and sought refuge in their little desert property where the neighbours never made a fuss and gave them utter privacy. As the cottonwood trees were shedding their blossom, Paul made sure that Linda was able to ride her favourite Appaloosa horse, Lucky Spot, as often as possible. Around the first week in April... Linda's liver finally began to fail. Though the Lady McCartney did not know that she was truly dying. Of course she was well aware of her cancer, but not of how bad it was and how little time she had left. In a very famous, possibly controversial and heart-wrenchingly endearing move, 
Paul spoke privately with Linda's doctor and they decided that she was better off not knowing that her condition was truly terminal. When speaking about this, McCartney said, I'm not actually sure she ever knew she was dying. I talked it over with the doctor and he said, I don't think she would want to know. I don't think it would do her any good. On Wednesday the 15th of April, Paul, knowing his wife had days, perhaps hours to live, put on his brave face one last time and took Linda out on Lucky Spot for what would be her final ride. And whilst Linda would struggle with the ride and it would tire her out, it was clearly a very special moment for the two of them. The next day, Linda was very tired and went to bed. It was here where she likely knew something was particularly wrong here. And eventually, after struggling, she slipped into a coma. As many of us hoped for, Linda died while surrounded by those closest to her, her family. She became restless around 3am and they all told her how much they loved her and said their goodbyes. Paul later shared that as his wife passed, his last words to her, well, some of the most beautiful words ever spoken. He said, You're up on your beautiful Appaloosa stallion. It's a fine spring day. We're riding through the woods. The bluebells are all out and the sky is clear blue. And that was all it took. McCartney had barely got to the end of the sentence when she closed her eyes and gently slipped away. Linda Louise McCartney died after losing her battle with breast cancer on April 17th, 1998. She was 56 years old. McCartney later stated that he and his children will never get over her death, though he said he thinks they will one day come to accept it. Publicly, the McCartney family made a formal press release that stuck to the basic details. To protect and throw the reporters off the path, they fibbed a bit and announced her place of death as Santa Barbara, California. Unfortunately, the truth came out that she'd passed in Tucson, which was immediately descended upon by the press. McCartney requested that the public abstain from sending flowers and instead suggested that people donate to cancer research or animal welfare charities or maybe even becoming a vegetarian in her honour. The official press statement put out by Paul read as follows. This is a total heartbreak for my family and I. Linda was and still is the love of my life and the past two years we spent battling her disease have been a nightmare. She never complained and always hoped she'd be able to conquer it. It was not to be. Our beautiful children, Heather, Mary, Stella and James, have been an incredible strength during this time and she lives on in all of them. The courage she showed to fight for her causes of vegetarianism and animal welfare was unbelievable. How many women can you think of who single-handedly take on opponents like the Meat and Livestock Commission, risk being laughed at, and yet succeed. People who didn't know her well, because she was a very private person, only ever saw the tip of the iceberg. She was the kindest woman I've ever met, the most innocent. All animals to her were like Disney characters, and worthy of love and respect. She was the toughest woman who didn't give a damn what other people thought. She also found it hard to be impressed by the fact that she was Lady McCartney. When asked whether people called her Lady McCartney, she said, 
Somebody once did, I think. I'm privileged to have been her lover for 30 years, and in all that time, except for one enforced absence, we never spent a single night apart. When people asked why, we, we would say, what for? As a photographer, there are few to rival her. Her photos showed intense honesty and a rare eye for beauty. As a mother, she was the best. We always said that we wanted for the kids was that they would grow up to have good hearts, and they have. Our family is so close that her passing has left a huge hole in our lives. We will never get over it, but I think we will come to accept it. The tribute she would have liked best would be for people to go vegetarian, which, with the vast variety of foods available these days, is much easier than many people think. She got into the food business for one reason only, to save animals from the cruel treatment our society and traditions force upon them. Anyone less likely to be a businesswoman, I can't think of. Yet, she worked tirelessly for the rights of animals and became a food tycoon. When she was told a rival firm had copied one of her products, all she would say was, Great, now I can retire. She wasn't in it for the money. In the end, she went quickly with very little discomfort and surrounded by her loved ones. The kids and I were there when she crossed over. They were each able to tell her how much they loved her. Finally, I said to her, you're up on a beautiful Appaloosa stallion, it's a fine spring day, we're riding through the woods, the bluebells roll out and the sky is clear blue. I had barely got to the end of the sentence when she closed her eyes and gently slipped away. She was unique and the world is a better place for having known her. Her message of love will live on in our hearts forever. I love you, Linda. Paul. In January 2000, Paul announced donations in excess of $2 million for cancer research at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and the Arizona Cancer Center in Tucson. The donations, through the Garland Appeal, were made on the condition that no animals would be used for testing. Also in 2000, the Linda McCartney Center, a cancer clinic, opened at the Royal Liverpool University Hospital. In November 2002, the Linda McCartney Kintyre Memorial Trust opened a memorial garden in Campbelltown, the main town in Kintyre, with a bronze statue of her by her cousin, sculptor Jane Robbins. A year after her death in 99, when he'd become more comfortable speaking about the topic at hand, Paul described Linda's death, saying, The blessing was at the end came very quickly, and she didn't suffer. I cried a lot. It was almost embarrassing, except it seemed the only thing to do. I cried for about a year on and off. You expect to see them walk in, this person you love, because you're so used to them. Something we cannot forget in terms of the trauma suffered by Paul here is that this was not the first time this had happened to him. Cast our minds back and you'll remember that breast cancer also killed his mother. When speaking about this cruel cosmic joke, Paul stated, Both my mum and Linda died of breast cancer. We had no idea what my mum had died of because no one talked about it. She just died. The worst thing about that was everyone in my family was stoic. Everyone kept their stiff upper lip up and then one evening you'd hear my dad crying in the next room. It was tragic because we'd never heard him cry. It was a very private kind of grief. So that was it. For the first time since his release from prison in Japan in 1980, Paul was truly alone. He and Linda were inseparable from the moment they met, and now he was left to his own devices. 
And it was this precise closeness that, rather than creating a sense of freedom or a new chapter in one's life, all it did was devolve into an immense sense of isolation and loneliness for this ex-Beatle. Though Paul being Paul, it is clear that he decided the best way to work through this time was to throw himself into his work. Perhaps he remembered the confidence-boosting advice that Linda gave him back in 69 and 70, so decided that he wasn't going to take this life-changing event lying down. Also, Paul was older by this point, and most importantly, he was a parent, and so he couldn't afford to let this ruin his life in the way that it might have done had he not had children. We're going to be covering all of the albums Paul did in part two of this series, but let's just say, folks, that, oh my God, Paul did so much between 1998 and 2001. It is clear he was running from something or looking to keep himself busy for obvious reasons. Rounding out this section, I thought I would read a passage that Paul wrote uh, in Club Sandwich number 86, 1998. Also, it should be noted that after the death of Linda, it was also the death of the Club Sandwich fan magazine, as it was mainly Linda's efforts that kept Paul interested in such a publication. Anyway, Paul writes, Linda means beautiful in Spanish, and my Linda was certainly that, inside and out. Anyone who met her, however briefly, was touched by her genuine interest and gentle kindness. I never stopped thinking about her as my girlfriend, even though she became my wife, my children's mother, and my lady. The beauty of her spirit never failed to communicate itself with those she encountered. Whether they were young or old, male, female, or whatever, they were worthy of respect, and so she treated them exactly the same, and they invariably felt very comfortable being with her. Our love of animals was something we discovered, we shared as time went by, and they too enjoyed the same deep respect given to them by her. Her vision of the world was, and is, a simple one. Love, kindness, respect and thoughtfulness for one another and for our fellow species, and a deep distrust of people who neglect such values. I am blessed to have shared 30 loving years with this uniquely special woman, a fact that I will remain eternally grateful for. This, of course, makes our loss that much more painful to bear. But the kids and I know that she would want us to be happy, even though, at this moment, it isn't an easy thing to do. This issue of Club Sandwich may convey a small amount of love we and her friends and her admirers feel for her, but nothing could ever really express the deepest feelings in our hearts. Her spirit will live forever in those of us who believe in the magic that she stood for. Linda means beautiful. We love you, Linda. Of course, after her death, there was a huge public outpour of sympathy and love towards the McCartneys and Linda herself. It was clear that she was an important part of millions of people's lives, and it was only appropriate that her impact on the world would be officially recognised. This wound up in becoming, here, there and everywhere, the concert for Linda McCartney. 
and was very much in the same vein as the concert for George that would be held in just a few years' time. It was held at the Royal Albert Hall on the 10th of April 1999 and was organised by two of her and Paul's mutual friends, Chrissy Hind and Carla Lane. Chrissy Hind, of course, being in The Pretenders and Carla Lane helping Linda co-write several songs. Hine and Linda had worked together supporting various animal rights groups, including PETA, and so proceeds from the show would obviously be going to various animal rights charities. Tickets to the show, about 5,000 in total, sold out within an hour after going on sale. Eddie Izzard was the host and compare for the evening, and acts that performed that night included The Pretenders playing Message of Love, Lyndon David Hall playing Abraham Martin and John and Foxy Lady, Desiree played Blackbird, Ladysmith Black Mambazo played Amazing Grace, Sinead O'Connor sang I Believe in You, George Michael did a trio of The Long and Winding Road, Eleanor Rigby and Faith, Neil Finn did She Goes On and Don't Dream It's Over, Heather Small sang What a Wonderful World, Johnny Marr came on stage to perform Meat is Murder. Tom Jones sang She's a Woman and The Green Green Grass of Home. Marianne Faithful sang As Tears Go By. Chrissy Hind, on her own, sang I Wish You Love. Elvis Costello did a duo of That Day Is Done and Peace, Love and Understanding. Then Paul came on stage finally to do Lonesome Town all my loving, and let it be. Chrissy said to me, she said, you know, will you sing a song or two? I said, well, I don't know if I'll be able to, but um, I've got it. Okay. So where's my band? Come on, guys, the pretenders. Yep. Okay. Oh, God. Okay, get them off. I just want to dedicate all of this to Linda, who's my beautiful baby, and our beautiful children who are here tonight. It's past your bedtime. And some other beautiful children who are here tonight. Including my new grandson, one week old. It's him. Yo, yo, Arthur. <laughs> this is a song which Linda and I used to listen to. Uh, well, I was in Liverpool, she was in New York, but we both listened to it in the 50s. It's by Ricky Nelson, it goes like this.
Thank you. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you. I suspect that there were more songs performed as the broadcast version that's also available on YouTube does not show all the songs. Though, on a side note, what is rather shocking to me is how setlist.com is unable to sort out multi-act concerts like this and instead it lists it as like 15 plus different concerts by 15 different acts which makes it far more confusing than it needs to be but oh well, uh, aside over. According to The Independent, a newspaper here in the UK, George Michael, in his first live appearance for two years, was probably the main reason the show sold out immediately when tickets went on sale. One trade publication mentioned that Michael said he was moved to take the stage for the first time in nearly three years because his mother had lost the same fight, the same battle that Linda lost. McCartney himself was not expected to perform, as he had not done any shows since becoming a widower. However, he attended the event with his four children. Then, after he took to the stage to thank the audience, at the urging of Chrissy Hind, he sang one of his and Linda's favourite 1950s songs, Ricky Nelson's Lonesome Town. He was backed by members of The Pretenders, along with Costello. The song was Paul's first recorded song since Linda died. Then, after performing that and All My Loving, Hind rushed over and gave McCartney an emotional embrace. Everyone then joined in for the closing song, Let It Be, which sadly 
was not broadcast and is a special little moment reserved only for those in attendance and bootleggers. Let's not forget the bootleggers. But yeah, that was the concert for Linda. Uh, the first of a thousand topics that will one day probably warrant its own episode. However, the story doesn't end there. Uh, being that Linda was such an integral, massive, insurmountable part of McCartney's life, it should not shock any of you that he didn't just stop at a tribute concert. No, he also went on to perform on a tribute album for his late wife, titled A Garland for Linda. A Garland for Linda was released in 2000 by the cancer-fighting organisation The Garland Appeal, who we mentioned earlier. The album features classical music written by ten contemporary composers, including Paul McCartney, John Rutter and John Taverner, recorded at All Saints Church, Tooting, in London. The song that Paul contributed to this album was called Nova. Like the rest of the album, it was a classical piece that matched the high quality of all the other classical music he was producing around that time. It was clearly very much his thing. It was written between November 1998 to May 1999 and was recorded on the 6th of September 1999. This means that Paul started writing this song when he knew Linda was dying and she did not, meaning the song could not be more steeped in Paul's own private tragedy if it tried. Though this would not be the only death around the period of this album that would affect Paul, but you know, we won't be touching that until the Memory Almost Full episode, I imagine. I can't bear to put George stuff in this episode as well. Anyway, A Garland for Linda is not one of the most well-known McCartney releases ever. You don't really ever hear about it all that often. And it only really comes up when doing a deep dive on Wikipedia into McCartney. But having given it a listen... It's definitely worth your time. There's 10 varied, interesting acts all on this album, giving some good old-fashioned classical entertainment, and it's impossible not to get swept up in the emotion of McCartney's song. And we are going to end this segment now with Nova. But before we move on, I just want to say that uh, for those of you who have been keeping up with the show and how you know the format's been evolving, we of course have been doing Linda segments in the more recent episodes of the show, and I just want to say it's been really fun and illuminating doing them, and it's something that I want to add into the show when I redo some of the earlier episodes in the future, and I can only hope I do them with a similar quality, because... This woman's story is integrally entwined with our kid Paul's and it should never be understated, underestimated or undervalued. Take care, lovely Linda. We'll see you on the other side.
Alright everyone, moving on from one woman to another, rather like how McCartney did, waka waka, we come to a part of the show where we're going to be introduced to the second major lady in Paul's life. This is a woman who he found solace in during his darkest hour, and the woman who would go on to be his second wife. Yes, it is time for us to talk about Heather Mills. Where did you get the bass from? Sample Row. <laughs> clean here. The song you just heard was not written for Heather Mills. Yes, Paul did indeed write a song for Heather called Heather for Driving Rain, and we'll cover it in parts two and three of this series, but the song you just heard there is purely a coincidence. This song, also called Heather, was an improvisation by Paul McCartney, assisted by Donovan and Mary Hopkin, recorded during the sessions for Hopkins' own Postcard album in November 68. The subject of this song was actually Paul's adopted daughter, Heather. Yes, there is another Heather in Paul's life that we really are yet to touch on in any form, but I thought it was a fun coincidence, and that I start this segment off with some form of levity, and for good reason. Anyway, let's play the proper Heather.
folks, to call Heather Mills a controversial figure in the Paul McCartney story is the understatement to end all understatements. She's absolutely reviled by the Beatles fan base, the McCartney fan base, and pretty much by the entirety of the populace of the United Kingdom. Fewer people have been as widely scorned, slandered, and poorly portrayed in Western media than Miss Mills. Now, it may all be totally justified, but we're not here today to talk about the messy multi-million dollar divorce that would come four years down the line. No, the point of this segment now is to document and explore the beginning of this interesting as fuck relationship phase in McCartney's life. Now, I want to point out that I'm well aware that you likely all want to hear me tear Heather Mills apart piece by piece, but let me tell you right off the bat, that I'm going to at least attempt to approach this relationship, its highs and lows, as objectively as possible. Okay, that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, originally I didn't join in on the dog pile, and I didn't want to. However, that was having looked at any of the evidence, and once I had read up on Heather and looked at several sources, it became... All too clear to me that Miss Mills is a nasty piece of work. Now, here I do want to point out that the toxicity between Heather and Paul was certainly two ways in parts, and that Paul, in all likelihood, did some rather problematic things in his own right during their time together, and I will definitely explore that openly once we go through the divorce. But even with that in mind, it's still hard to not see Heather largely as the most negative element in the compound. I mean, of course, Heather Mills is no murderer, like Phil Spector, but instead, she is certainly more analogous to someone like Alan Klein, i.e. this very manipulative figure that certainly got one over on Paul, and someone who would remain a, a thorn in his paw in perpetuity. Though, I should point out that this isn't a very hard conclusion to come to, as none of the sources available are positive about her at all. I mean, even her supposedly neutral Wikipedia entry seems to be written by someone who does not like her at all. And the Howard Soon's book, Fab, and Intimate Life of McCartney, which we discussed with the author in one of our earliest episodes, um, a book where the majority of my knowledge of Heather comes from, hardly goes out of its way to make her out as the most reliable of sources or nicest of people. Heather Ann Mills was born on the 12th of January 1968, the day George Harrison was recording The Inner Light in Mumbai. She was born in Aldershot, Hampshire, to John Mark Francis, a former British paratrooper, and his wife Beatrice Mary Mills, who was the daughter of a colonel in the British Army. 
When Heather was six years old, the family moved to Alnwick in Northumberland, but relocated shortly afterwards to a block of flats in Washington, Tyne and Ware, and then on to <laughs> Cockshot Farm in Rothbury, Northumberland. So lots of moving about in her early life. In contrast to Linda and Jane Asher, her upbringing was very much a working class one, something that likely attracted McCartney to her immensely. Heather later wrote that when she was eight years old, she and her next door neighbour were kidnapped and sexually assaulted by a swimming pool attendant. But her neighbour, Margaret Ambler, alleged that Heather's story was nothing what she made it out to be, that Heather was never a victim, and that the pool attendant did not commit suicide as she had written. Yeah, Heather Mills wrote an autobiography that is basically one of the most debunked pieces of fiction ever written. Heather's mother left home when she was nine years old to live with Crossroads actor Charles Stapley, which left her and her older brother Shane and her younger sister Fiona in the care of their father. Also, we should point out that Crossroads was a popular sitcom here in the UK, so popular that McCartney did the theme of that show at the end of Venus and Mars. It all connects. Heather once said that her father threw her brother Shane against a window for making a mess on the carpet with crayons. The window broke and that Shane had to be taken to hospital, where John explained that the boy had fallen on some glass in the garden. Her sister Fiona said, Our family was always short on money, and our father demanded that we find food and clothes, so we turned to shoplifting, learned to hide from the bailiffs, and became experts at domestic duties. I'm not ashamed to say that we were forced to steal, because when you are a young child, you'd rather do it than face a beating from your father. John disputed both of his daughter's allegations that he was violent towards them, later releasing home movies of family holiday in Wales, showing Mills playing happily. When Heather's father was jailed for 18 months after being convicted of fraud, she left home with her sister Fiona to live with their mother and her partner, the Crossroads actor Charles Stapley, in Clapham, London. Heather wrote that at the age of 15, she ran away to join a fun fair and lived in a cardboard box under Waterloo Station for four months whilst consorting with drug addicts, rent boys and prostitutes though this has been denied by Stapley, saying that she'd occasionally left homes at weekends to travel with a young man who worked at a fun fair in London. During Heather's stated period of homelessness, her school records indicate that she and her sister were both enrolled at Usworth Comprehensive in Tyne and Ware until April 1983, and at Hydeburn Comprehensive in Balham on the 6th of June that year, where they both stayed up until the 2nd of July, 84. Heather remembered that a teacher at Hydeburn once said that there's no hope for her at all and that she left school with no academic qualifications. By age 16, Mills was working amongst the fringes of the sex industry, finding occupation as a barmaid in a Soho hostess club in the Red Light District, right around the corner of the offices of MPL, just as it happens. Enter Alfie Carmel, the son of a Palestinian father and Greek mother, who was 10 years older than Mills when they met in 86, a.k.a. around the time that Paul was promoting Press to Play. Again, just as it happens, Carmel brought her new clothes and Cartier jewellery, paid for cosmetic surgery for her breasts and her first portfolio shoot. 
Carmel, who had recently moved into the computer industry, then set up a modelling agency for her, titled Excel Management, although it was not successful. In 87, Mills went to live in Paris, telling Carmel that a cosmetics company had given her a modelling contract, but instead she became the mistress of a millionaire Lebanese businessman, George Kazan, for two years and took part in nude photo sessions for a stills-only German sex education manual called Die Freuden der Liebe, The Joys of Love. It should also be noted that in several sources, George Kazan is called an illegal arms dealer as well, which only adds to the salaciousness of this story. It was only later that Carmel would learn of Mills's glamour modelling work, as she would only ever admit to doing brief swimsuit modelling. This all came to an end, though, when, according to Mills, the head of the likely non-existent modelling company that she was supposedly working for, again, supposedly, fell so much in love with her that they asked her to marry her 50 times in one day. After returning to London, Mills asked Carmel to marry her. Carmel said yes, but on one condition, that she see a psychiatrist to help her with her compulsive lying. He said, and I quote, I told her I couldn't marry her until she did something about her compulsive lying, and she agreed to see a psychiatrist for eight weeks. She admitted she had a problem and said it was because she'd been forced to lie as a child by her father. Although Mills proposed to Carmel, she later said that every man she's ever been with has asked me to marry him within a week. The couple married on the 6th of May, 89, and whilst married to Carmel, she suffered two eptopic pregnancies. So, in 1990, Carmel paid for her to go on holiday to Croatia with his children and ex-wife, whom Mills had become friends with. But Mills ended up living with her Slovenian ski instructor, Milos Pogaka, shortly before the Croatian war began. So, Mills set up a refugee crisis centre in London, helping over 20 people to escape the war. She drove to deliver donations to Croatia, taking modelling assignments in Austria along the way over to pay for the trip, later saying that she worked on the front line of the war in a former Yugoslavia for two years while there were mines everywhere that weren't marked. Carmel and Mills were divorced by 91, and Mills was later engaged to Raphael Minaconi, a bond dealer for the Industrial Bank of Japan in 93, after meeting him at the Stringfellows Strip Club. On the 8th of August 1993, Mills walked past the corner of De Vere Gardens and Kensington Road in London. But while crossing the Kensington Road, Mills was knocked down by a police motorcycle, the last of a convoy of three, which was responding to an emergency call. Mills suffered several crushed ribs, a punctured lung, and the loss of her left leg six inches below the knee, and a metal plate was later attached to her pelvis. In October in 93, she had another operation that further shortened her leg. Mills was awarded £200,000 by the police authority as recompense for her injuries, and this was despite the fact that the PC motorcyclist, PC Osborne, was cleared by magistrates of driving without due care and attention. She later stated, I would never have sued, but the officer launched a damages suit against me, so I had no choice. Firstly, folks, let's just forget about the fact that 
Heather Mills is claiming that she wouldn't have sued the people who cut off her leg, uh, which I think anyone would do, regardless of <laughs> circumstance. How fucked up is it that the Beatles story features two women being knocked over by policemen in fatal and or potentially fatal incidences? It's crazy, right? However, Mills was not going to take this one lying down, pardon the pun, even while still in hospital, she was already selling her lucrative story of a sexy model turned amputee to the tabloid papers, and from then on gained some serious traction in terms of her publicity. She regularly appeared in papers, on daytime TV, and was even awarded the Daily Star newspaper's Gold Star Award for bravery, even meeting then-Prime Minister John Major in the process. Ironically, the accident seems to have been the very thing that catapulted her into the position and status in life that she'd always craved. In April of 99, Mills presented the Outstanding Bravery Award to Helen Smith, who had lost her legs, an arm and her hand to septicemia, and to make an appeal on behalf of the Heather Mills Health Trust. A certain Paul McCartney was there at the award show last night, mostly in remembrance of Linda, by presenting an award in her name to a campaigning vegetarian friend of theirs called Juliette Gelati, as well as another award dedicated to his late wife. This was some 13 months since the death of Linda, and little had been seen of Paul in the meantime. In fact, it had been so long and Paul had done so little that MPL had a loss of over a third of a million pounds that year. So, it was good to get Paul out and about again, but little did Paul's team know that they were about to drastically shape his future for the next few years. Mills took to the stage to give her award in a translucent red top, as noted by author Howard Soons. Paul leaned and asked controversial journalist and overall dickhead, Pierce Morgan, who she was, and Pierce filled in all the blanks. She's quite a girl, isn't she? remarked McCartney. As a side note, Pierce actually wrote an article in 2006 where he ended by apologising to Paul for being the one who did introduce them. Mills then went to Cambodia the next day, though it was not until she returned that she realised Paul had actually left her an answer phone message stating that he would like to talk to her about her <coughs> charity work. Paul then invited her to his offices and talked to her about donating to her charity, which later came in the form of a cheque for £150,000. He also advised her to get her charity officially registered, as all charities who take over £5,000 in the UK legally have to. However, even as she left with the £150,000 cheque, she wouldn't register her charity for another seven months. When talking about the matter shortly after, she said, I thought he was very cute, but it didn't enter into my head that he fancied me. In the meantime, before Heather officially started courting Paul, she got engaged to British documentarian Chris Terrell. A week before their wedding, Heather called it off, saying she was going to be holidaying in Greece. This sound familiar to anyone? Though the real reason she reneged on her commitments was because she was accompanying Paul on his holiday to the Hamptons. Once they returned, it was clear that they were now an inseparable couple. 
Heather would later comment that Paul was so happy during this period that he was to be literally seen dancing down the street like Fred Astaire. Eventually, the media caught Heather leaving one of the homes on the McCartney's P. Marsh estate, likely after being tipped off, or possibly even by Heather herself, and before you know it, they were an official item in the eyes of the public. McCartney appeared publicly beside her in January 2000 to celebrate her 32nd birthday. Moving back just slightly, in the autumn of 1999, Mills and her sister recorded Voice, which is voice but there's an exclamation mark in the place of the I in the middle, and it's a song they wrote to raise funds for Mills' charity, with McCartney agreeing to sing backing vocals. After recording the song in Greece, where Mills' sister lived and ran the independent record label Coda Records, the two sisters stayed overnight at McCartney's estate in Marsh, the same one that we just mentioned earlier, in early November, where McCartney then added his vocals to the song. Now, you know, this was recorded for charity, folks, so this song isn't really open to the same kind of criticism as the rest of his catalogue, but I'm not going to lie, I really enjoyed the song, and I cannot wait to review it properly in a future Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode. Though, I will admit, it's hardly a grand musical statement and far more of a political one. The song itself comprises simply of a spoken word piece performed by Mills herself, set to a very funky backing tune. Though, it is quite controversial and uses some language that is just, it just doesn't fly today. The other musicians on this record are unknown to most and include one Jonathan Elvey on piano and Stamos Seamus credited to strings. Plus you also get McCartney himself on guitar, which is also pretty cool. You know what, fuck it, let's play it right now. It's funny how you take things for granted in life and never think about them until they happen to you or someone you love. Something like disability. perfect. You found a wonderful partner. You have a child, the midwife hands are over. Something's missing. Your partner may leave. You have to cope alone. They're afraid of the responsibility, what people might think, how the child may look. It's not the dream baby you wanted, but it's yours. She grows up and she has her own special qualities. It's been hard. Other children can be cruel, teasing and tormenting. Freak, weirdo, retard. What do they know? Listen. How is she, they ask you, as if she has no voice. 
So you take a deep breath for the millionth time And you smile through her eyes And say, why don't you ask her? She has a voice Why don't you ask her? She has a voice Ask her! So you go to the NHS And they do their best with the limited budget they have They make her her limbs But she can't wear them They're painful And every step you watch her take Is even more painful to you So you thank them because this is the best they can do. Or is it? No, Mr. Minister, it's not. And you know it. Where's the freedom of choice? Try and move with no ability. Have you ever lived with disability? It was also around this time that the first waves of Heather bashing and Heather hate began to rear their ugly head. The papers were immediately hostile towards her and her loose interpretation of the truth surrounding her own life was always a matter of ridicule. However, despite supposedly finding out about her somewhat sordid past, Paul publicly stood by her in the papers and on cheesy daytime talk shows. His own fans were also less than welcoming, with Heather experiencing a distinct lack of warmth from any of them and a complete dearth of fan mail. The fans, like many people, just couldn't understand why Paul was putting so much time, money and effort into this D-list celeb. And this is a trend that continues as Heather was seemingly unable to hit it off with anyone in Paul's circle, except Paul himself. None of his kids took to her. His staff and associates at NPL were all rather unapproving of her presence, though supposedly behind closed doors, and even old acquaintances were none too impressed. Mike Robbins, Paul's cousin, and the man who gave the Nurk twins their first gig back in 1960, met Heather at a party at McCartney's place on New Year's Eve. He offered to shake her hand, which she declined, and rather than joining the rest of the guests and socialising, she decided to hold up in the kitchen for the night. He commented, I said to my wife, have you seen the bird? She said, no. I said, go have a look. 
So Bet wandered into the kitchen and comes back a bit later and said, Oh, very strange young lady. I said, one of Paul's brief bits of crumpet, I presume. Mike would go on to comment that the reason he thought Mills so effectively won over Paul was, well, sex. His exact quote was, I'm being crude now, but he was cock-happy, and he confused sex with love. He couldn't tell the difference. Yes, let's address this. One of the prevailing ideas surrounding Paul's speedy infatuation with Heather was due to the fact that, in all likelihood, he had only been with one woman since the late 60s. Yeah, I know in previous episodes I've voiced a somewhat sceptical viewpoint on that idea, but, you know, even in recent years we've seen more and more people speak out in articles that Paul was indeed 100% faithful to Linda, and that, if anything, it actually goes towards explaining why Paul, a man who was once very worldly, shall we say, was now utterly enamoured by a woman who, again, by all accounts and all unfounded rumours, was adept in the world of bodily delights. It's not the worst theory ever, as many people stay in toxic relationships if the sex is good, but it still admittedly sounds a little simple. Like, I can't find the quote, but I read somewhere that like Paul, in some ways, like felt sorry for Heather because she had like one leg and stuff, and maybe like pity and sex, and even just the idea that Paul was on the rebound. He he was still being affected by his previous relationship and that was affecting his ability to deal with the new one. Awkward encounters with Linda don't stop at Mike either. Anthony Smith, the then president of Magdalen College, Oxford, who had asked Paul to compose Ecce Cormium or Essay Cormium, claimed after meeting her that whilst he and Mills didn't row publicly, there were certainly some awkward silences. Heather was often on the phone to do with her charitable works. I didn't get a strong sense that she was in love. Then, later, around the time of the first performance of Essay or Ecce Cormium, he was still less than impressed by their relationship, saying, You know when a woman loves the man she's with, and there was no love there. Everyone could see it, everyone around them. You could just see it, you could just feel it. And he didn't. Or he had convinced himself that because he was a good man, which he is, you know, an extremely morally motivated person in all things, I think he felt he ought to love her. That's my theory. Then, on one occasion, Paul and Heather bumped into Beatles biographer and music video director Tony Bramwell. However, Bramwell knew Heather from back in her London clubbing days. He said, Heather looked at me in horror, knowing I'd been in the clubs when she was slapping around looking for a rich man. This is when Heather suddenly declared that there was no one interesting to talk to at said event and dragged Paul away from Branwell, who would go on to say that Heather Mills was just as horrid as he originally thought Yoko was. Even old friend and collaborator Eric Stewart saw through her right away and even sent Paul a letter warning him of her wily ways. Though this did backfire on him and would end up with him being cast out of the McCartney inner circle, Something which I imagine happened to quite a lot of people. Stuart said, She went to that charity show knowing she would meet him. I do believe she said to somebody before that she was going to marry him. So I sent him a letter of warning. I didn't get a reply. But as soon as they got together, the people I knew at MPL, all these old friends, suddenly seemed to disappear. They got replaced. 
Suddenly, I couldn't ring him there. I could ring him at home or in the studio, but no one would put you through to him. What's going on here? It was like he was trying to sweep out anybody who knew him and Linda together. Now, I think maybe Eric's got the wrong end of the stick here and thinking that this is Paul being like vindictive or trying to cover up the past so he can get on with this new relationship. I think Paul was generally just a bit upset that his friend had shat all over his new relationship rather than embracing it. And he just chose to accept Heather's truth rather than the actual truth. Hell, even Heather's ex, Alfie Carmel from earlier, came out of the woodwork to give his two cents on the matter, saying that marrying Heather was the biggest mistake of my life. Speaking of making the greatest mistake in one's life, Paul would indeed decide to marry Heather. We don't know exactly when he made this decision, but in January of 2001, he did go ahead and purchase a £15,000 diamond and sapphire ring in Jaipur, India, while they were there on holiday. Anyone who knows the track listing of Driving Rain will know this as the time Paul wrote Riding Into Jaipur, where he would refer to Heather as his baby, which, as you know, is the word he would use to describe Linda only a few years prior. Then we come to the period of the recording of Driving Rain in LA, where Paul and Heather would rent a house together on where else but Heather Road in Beverly Hills. The couple liked the house so much that they bought it. Also around this time, you know, the housing matters, MPL quote-unquote loaned Heather £800,000 to buy and fix up another house, a little terrace property on a private shingle beach in Sussex. After that year's annual lipper ceremony, Paul took Heather on a holiday to the Lake District. Then, on the banks of the lake, Paul got down on one knee and proposed to Mills on the 23rd of July, 2001. That means that Paul had held on to that ring that he bought in Jaipur for six months before proposing, which really highlights the kind of man he is and the kind of mind he has. After she said yes, he burst into tears and they were now set to be wed. However, the engagement period was not all sunshine and rainbows. After Paul spent a lot of time at home following the September 11th attacks, she got bored of sitting around and flew off to work on her charity commitments. You see, since becoming Mrs McCartney-to-be, she received a much-welcomed boost to her public profile and decided to use it to her advantage, i.e. further expanding the reach and influence of her charity. Also, during the Driving USA tour, which Heather accompanied Paul on in its entirety, there was an incident when residents at the... Turnberry Isle Resort in Miami were woken up by a loud argument between the two. Witnesses supposedly reported that Paul screamed, I don't want to marry you, the wedding is off. The next day, the staff had to hire metal detectors to find the engagement ring as it had apparently fallen, totally not been thrown, from the couple's balcony. Also, I just want to point out before this time, the couple went back to India for another holiday where he bought her even more jewellery as well as giving her another £150,000 to decorate the Sussex house. And, I don't know why he did this, they also got a joint credit card. I should also, also point out that apparently during this whole time, Paul never took off Linda's wedding ring until their wedding day, and apparently used contraception with Heather every time they made love until their wedding night. These actions being as some have theorised, 
not being those of a man who was wholly sure about what he was doing was the right thing. After the Driving USA tour and performing for the Queen's Golden Jubilee, McCartney set his sights back on getting married. Apparently the spat in Miami had been patched up and things were back on track. In recognition of Paul's Irish roots, the ceremony was set to take place at Castle Leslie in the village of Glaslow in County Monaghan, Ireland. This was the land of Paul's ancestors who left to come to England as poor farmers and now their descendant came back as one of the biggest names in history. The whole affair was meant to be as private as possible and the congregation was going to be a relatively small 300 people. Famous faces included Ringo Starr, Dave Gilmore, Linda's aforementioned friend Chrissy Hind, Twiggy, Nitin Sawney and George Martin. Now, whilst Mary and Stella were in attendance, it is very notable indeed that James and Heather were absent as they were both strongly against this second marriage. The ceremony was held at St. Salvatore's Church on the Castle Leslie Estate on the 11th of June 2002, four years after the death of Linda. But even this part, the special day itself, didn't exactly go well for the quote-unquote happy couple. Heather arrived on site over an hour late, with some guests reporting a last-minute argument between the two. Still, to the relief of some and sadness of others, they did indeed leave the church as husband and wife. The couple then enjoyed their typically lavish reception. It had an Indian theme, possibly harking back to their first holiday in India that they had, with an opulence so extreme that not only was the food served on golden plates, but the guests could also keep said golden plates as a souvenir. After much merrymaking, dancing and drinking, the couple boarded the Barnaby Rudge, a.k.a. the boat Paul drove down the Thames in the Beatles anthology series, and they sailed across the lake to their future as Mr. and Mrs. McCartney. They were now together, for better and for worse. Now, to close out this segment, I'm going to inject a little more humour into the proceedings before we get into some very dark stuff indeed, with a song that I found online accidentally whilst looking for evidence of Heather's supposed pornographic trysts. Yeah, I know it's a little bit creepy, but, you know, as Pete Townsend once said, it was entirely for research. This is a song by an artist or a group called, and I'm not kidding here, Cunt and the Gang, and the song is called Heather Mills. Thinks you're a money-grabbing slag Who wanked off Arabs for cash And there's no one you wouldn't shag You're a compulsive liar It said in the sun You're worse than Myra Hindley Maxine Carr and Rose West rolled into one But I'm sure there's a side to you That I'll probably never see Much like that bit of leg You lost in 1993 Never Mills McCartney You're my favourite amputee Now will you share the money You robbed off support Just me, do you agree, Mr. B? Now, Heather, I don't know whether I should, but by presenting me your neck, you've given me wood. It's good now, I like a bit of what you call it. Put your hands into my britches, put it out of my wallet for half here. You're a gravel and gynander, it means that you smell and you look like a man there. Now, I don't speak Geordie, and you don't speak sense. 
but Carl's got some money about 50 pence. You said you'd never done any porn, but on the web I saw some stuff. It looked like it was the 80s though, cause you had a great big mum. There was some German bloke with his cock out, and next to him you were lying. I didn't see any penetration shots, though it wasn't through want to try. All McCartney's kids never liked you from the word go. You couldn't make a veggie sausage, and you nicked their old man's dough. But I'll love you as much as anyone I've ever loved before. Actually, there's one leg less to love, so proportionally, that's more. Ever Mills McCartney, you're my favourite amputee. Now, will you share the money you robbed off support with me? Ever Mills McCartney, you're my favourite amputee. Now, give us a flash of your hairy gash and a look at your stumpy knee. Give us a flash of your hairy gash and a look at your stumpy knee. Right, after that delightful tune... It is time for us to press on to the third of our main topics today. And we've already tackled two pretty darn heavy ones, to say the least. But without any joking or irony, it is obvious that they pale in comparison to this next segment. Yes, everyone, it is time for us to be as non-jokey and solemn as we've ever been on this show before. It is time for us to discuss the events of... The impact of and Paul's reaction to the September 11th attacks in New York City. On the 11th of September 2001, four passenger airlines were hijacked and used in a series of coordinated suicide attacks carried out by the militant Islamic extremist network Al-Qaeda against the United States. Now, for the sake of brevity, in this already lengthy episode, and because it would be a wilder turn in subject matter than we've already Uh, experienced on this episode, I will not be talking about the other theories behind 9-11, some of which may or may not hold water, and instead we are going to go with the official party line here. And besides, conspiracies and alternate facts don't play into the narrative we're telling on Paul or nothing, so, you know. So let's just stick to the facts, shall we? On September 11th, 2001, Paul and Heather were due to fly back to London from JFK Airport in New York City. They were sat in first class on their own commercial aeroplane, ready for takeoff, when the once familiar New York skyline was suddenly swollen by a mass of black smoke being emitted from the World Trade Center. Now, they did not yet know it, but they were watching the aftermath of the first plane hitting the North Tower at 8.46am. Then, 17 minutes whilst the couple was still on the runway, a second plane struck the South Tower. Their plane never left the ground. Instead, McCartney and Mills were rushed to their house on Long Island by the security team and continued to watch the devastation for themselves on TV. About a week after the attack, McCartney and Mills quietly visited Ground Zero. Heather and I went out for dinner, he recalls, and when we finished, I said, would you like to get a cab and see how near we can get? So we took a cab and we went down to Canal Street And then we started walking. It was raining. We went up to police lines and asked, could we go down there? A few of the guys recognised me and said, well, you could come through, Paul. It was that kind of spirit. He continues, it was like, good, you're down here. And I was like, it's great what you're doing. Of course, the nearer we got, the smoke was in our clothes, in our eyes. You could see all the spotlights. We just stood there, said a little prayer, and that was it. Then we went to this bar nearby, which was nearly empty. Maybe a couple of rescue workers were there. I said, I need a stiff drink. Yes, folks, 
it is clear that in this ever-unfolding narrative, ever-more-detailed story, hopefully, that we are telling about Paul McCartney, it really shouldn't be that surprising that Paul, in some way, was impacted by one of the most impactful global events in recent memory. Now, of course, it is entirely way more relevant to Paul and impactful to him personally, because our boy, our Paul, just so happened to be on the tarmac on the day of 9-11. Now, I'm sure Paul gets far more private and well-guarded planes and flights than we do, but the fact that Paul McCartney was on a plane on the day when there was three planes or four planes hijacked in that country around that time, he must have genuinely been terrified in this moment. Of course, the moment is way bigger than him, and any you know worry he had on that day, of course, pales in comparison. But obviously, you know, he's a human, and then at that time, in that moment, how could he not have been thinking about something like that? The clearly affected and deeply moved McCartney became determined to help revive the city, taking his cues from then-Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani, of course, being that guy who's now famous for having part of his hair dye, like, dripping down his face during some sort of political scandal. Yes, he came back in recent years. But, yeah, what Paul said about him was, I thought Giuliani was really good about saying, we've got to get back to work. If we don't, the terrorists achieve one of their objectives. I think he came out looking really good. For now, Paul. For now. When Heather returned, after attending to her charity stuff, the same trip that we detailed earlier, she suggested that Paul should do a charity concert for 9-11. At first, Paul was hesitant, as he was concerned that the concert would just be seen as a shameless move to either you know, profit off a massive tragedy or just promote his then-upcoming album, Driving Rain. Heather rebuked these worries as being very silly, and this is when she recommended that he write a song about freedom, a word that was spoken about a lot in America at this time. However, whilst Paul was planning his own concert, it turns out that VH1 and Harvey massive rapist Weinstein were already planning on holding a concert for the 9-11 first responders, who had, of course, more than distinguished themselves during the attacks, with The Who reportedly set as the headliners. McCartney was then persuaded by Weinstein, God knows how dread thing, to abandon the plans for his own concert and instead become the headliner for this one instead. There are some rumours that The Who were a bit annoyed that Paul was stealing the limelight from them, which was especially sore as, you know, they committed first to this, to this first responders gig, but... Pete Townsend later implied that they would always defer to, say, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, a.k.a. Paul, and that it was their management more than anything that was upset. Our next guest has had a career that spanned five decades. He's been responsible for some of the greatest songs of our time, and he's definitely the biggest star we've ever had on CD UK. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome <laughs> Sir Paul McCartney! <laughs> I can 
to the show. Thank you. And first of all, uh, thanks for coming down. It's lovely to be here. Great Thank to have you here. Yes, Thank indubitably. You. Indubitably. Yeah. All right. Okay. That's for his pal. Watching. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you've been in the news recently for the, the benefit gig in yeah. New York. Yeah. And uh, you organised that very quickly. How, how did you get it all together so fast? Um, it was one of those things, you know, people felt very helpless and wanted to do something to help all mm. the firefighters. So uh, I just rang up a couple of people, and then people like Mick Jagger and all the guys, David Bowie, The Who, all just rang up and said, okay, we'll do it. So it was very quick, and we just got on and did it. Oh, cool. So you personally rang up the other artists on the bill and said, look, no, put I didn't this personally. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice fantasy, though, Andy. My man rang their man. <laughs> all right. Oh. Did anybody, That's how it happened. Did anybody actually say no? Um, no. Brilliant. No, it was really, you know, it was one of those things people just wanted to do. And the other thing is, because they were such huge stars yeah. on stage, was yeah. there any kind of egos kicking about at all? Or... Just a little bit. Oh, really? really? I'm not telling you. Oh. No. Was it Come something on. to do with appearing on the stage at the end? There was a little bit of that, yeah, but it wasn't really, you know, I mean, who cares? I don't care. Yeah. Enough people showed up at the end, you know, but I've just presumed somebody had to go to dinner or something. Which they probably <laughs> did, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, on to the new album. Yes. The new album, Driving Rain. Uh, yeah. I've been listening to it over the past week or so, and it's it's quite a romantic album. Yeah. It's it's it's, it's very romantic. Is that because of the, the state of mind that you're in at the moment? Is that how you yeah, I think so. You know, I, I, I'm kind of a romantic kind of person, you know. Mm. I think it's kind of good when guys give girls flowers and all that. So I like all that. Yeah. Yeah, you see that, I mean, I think the girls like it, and I think it's good for the guys, too. Yeah. It's a good thing. So it reflects on that, yeah? And I have a new girlfriend, Helen. Mm -hmm. So that's lovely. I'm at a nice stage in my life, you yeah. know? Oh, cool. And you've also said, whilst recording this album, you, you went back to uh, when you were recording, you went back to when you used to record stuff with the Beatles, and you didn't used to... You used to take the demos in and say, right, yeah. This is the first time you hear it. Yeah, well, I was doing an interview and I was talking to someone. I was saying, well, you know, how we used to do it, show up on a Monday morning, yeah. and me and John would show George and Ringo what the song was. And mm. I thought, they didn't even know. You know, and that's like normally, you tell the band what yeah. you're going to record, yeah. you know. So I thought maybe that's a kind of good way to do it. It keeps it very fresh. It's just like now we say, okay, let's do this song. And you've got to think really quick. Yeah. You've got to work quick. Wow. And the ideas come fast and thick. You know? And you've done the whole, every, every track on the album? Yeah. We kind of did, yeah, we did most of the stuff in about two weeks, really. And, and each track in a day, that kind of thing. Yeah, sometimes we did two tracks in a day, which, you know, wasn't fast for us with the Beatles. We used to do about four in a day. Yeah. Really? Nowadays, people take three weeks to switch the computer on. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know they're born, these young pop stars, do they? No. Don't know them. Well, no, <laughs> is, it, is it true that you show all your new material to George and Ringo and see what they think of it? No. No, you don't do that. No. no. No, I think that's come off that last story I was telling. Ah, got, right, got mixed see. up, yeah. Right, right. The concert took place on the 20th of October 2001 at Madison Square Gardens. And when I say, folks, that it sported an A-list lineup, get ready. Showing up to support the first responders to 9-11, we had, in order of appearance, David Bowie, Bon Jovi, Jay-Z... The Goo Goo Dolls, Billy Joel, Destiny's Child, Eric Clapton with Buddy Guy, uh, Adam Sandler was there to do a little skit, Backstreet Boys, Melissa Etheridge, The Who, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, Macy Gray, James Taylor, John Mellencamp, Kid Rock, Five for Fighting, Janet Jackson, Elton John, Elton John with Billy Joel, and then rounding things out we had a little known artist called Paul McCartney. So, yeah, it is clear that the Who's were not only 
not the closing act, but they were now right in the middle of the show. But apparently things have worked out best for them as a result of this gig. Apparently they gained a lot of popularity after doing this show. You know, this part of Paul's career really isn't even that fondly remembered by the fans, let alone general audiences. So the Who still won out here, I guess. Though that's not entirely by accident, as we are going to get into the set list now. And one of the songs here is definitely the reason why Paul really doesn't tout this as one of his great concerts anymore, especially in like, you know, archival footage, that kind of thing. The set list for Paul's performance was interesting, to say the least. I mean, if he was concerned about people thinking he was just plugging his new album... He did a bad job because, you know, he was putting this set list together and how many songs are in it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, with one song being repeated. So in a six song set list, shall we say, we have three songs that would eventually find their way onto Driving Rain. So half of the new songs are plugging the new album right off the bat. I'm just saying probably should have just done the one song from the new album. Maybe if you didn't want people to think this, you could have just come in and done some more favourites. Because when we come on to the other songs, it, it, it gets very strange indeed. Of course, we have three Beatles songs with the other material. You know, the solo works are not going to get a look in when there's a new solo album. I think that's safe to say. But for, for song one, we have, as regularly pointed out by TJ on the Untitled Beatles podcast, is such a perplexing choice. In addition to two staple favourites that we'll get into shortly, Paul opens this concert with I'm Down... Now, don't get me wrong, this is a great song that could always use with Paul performing it a little more now and then, but I think that this is just... something feels a little off. Like, I can totally see why Paul would think to use this song. You know, everyone is literally feeling down right now. And the song itself quite literally reflects that. But it's the implications that are a little screwy. Like, first of all... Forgive me if this sounds crass, but, you know, the towers fell down. And that that pun implication right there is just plain awkward immediately. And then you have the line, how can you laugh when you know I'm down? And I'm just, I'm just like, okay, who's laughing here, Paul? You know, the rest of the world stood by America in true solidarity after the attack. So no one there was laughing. And so it's like, is the Paul addressed to the terrorists themselves? Which is baffling. But I'm likely thinking about this one too much. Ken's probably going to repeat that in two weeks. But, you know, you can't tell me that there weren't 50 better songs that Paul could have done here. Solo or Beatles. Let's just look at this set list. We have I'm Down, then Lonely Road, From a Lover to a Friend, Yesterday, Freedom, Let It Be, and then a repeat of Freedom.
Now, I know what some of you are thinking. What the hell is Freedom? Well, Freedom was the song that was written and recorded by Paul, especially for this occasion. Paul was clearly incredibly affected by the September 11th attacks and wrote this song the very next day. In the song, Paul writes rather against type. And rather than, say, writing the ebony and ivory for a new generation, he ends up going on the other side of the spectrum, which, which, which was incredibly interesting in itself, like the impact of those attacks and Paul witnessing them in the way he did, causing him to write a song where he basically declares that freedom is a right given by God that he will, quote-unquote, fight for, you know, fighting, something worth fighting for, something that Paul has never really spoken about before, that the Beatles never really spoke about before, you know, maybe Lennon hinted at something with the um, out and in in Revolution, but Paul's never written about a song where people fight, like we've had Tug of War maybe, where there's struggle and conflict, but you know, more famously is Pipes of Peace, the song about peace and resolution, and yet Paul has no resolution here, it's just about fighting for freedom, it's I can't wait to talk to Ken about this song. I really cannot. But these lyrics are so against the peace and love mantra that it's hard not to think of them as automatically one of the most important tracks in the McCartney songbook, even if it's not one of the best. You know, it's a shame that this isn't in the lyrics book that we had. It'd be great to hear what Paul thinks about this song in the present day. But yeah, to anyone non-American listening, wondering why freedom was so important as a concept outside of just the obvious war connotations, it was a word that was very commonly used by the rhetoric of George Bush after the attacks. And you know, it's, it's a word that was resonating through the culture at that time. When performing the song live, McCartney declared the following, It's about freedom. It's one thing that these people don't understand. That's worth fighting for. These people, Paul. Eesh, that, that, that quote hasn't aged that well. In a later interview, McCartney commented, To me, it's a, we shall overcome. That's how I sort of wrote it. It's like, hey, I've got freedom. I'm an immigrant coming to America. Give me your huddled masses. And that's what it means to me. It's a, don't mess with my rights, buddy, because now I'm free. Those two quotes there, back-to-back, back, are quite interesting because in the first one, Paul kind of seems to imply that the song is about the other. It's you know about those who don't have freedom, trying to take it away from people. And then in the second quote, it makes it out that maybe the, the, the song is about the other, the other person who is looking for freedom. That's quite interesting. It's a bit like the lavatory lil backpedalling we, we had a year ago. Anyway, despite the song being a little so-so, something I will discuss in part three, there was supposedly a very strong audience reception after the performance of Freedom, which featured Eric Clapton on lead guitar, along with McCartney's touring band. And so a single was re-recorded in studio, at least the vocals were anyway, to Rush release the song a week after the concert. A new retail CD single was planned for November 5th as part of a two-song disc with From a Lover to a Friend, with the earlier version of the From a Lover to a Friend single being recalled. In keeping with his generosity with the project, 
All proceeds from both singles went to the Robin Hood Foundation, which distributed funds to the families of victims and to New York emergency workers. The single reached number 97 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number 20 on the Billboard Adult Contemporary chart. Additionally, Capitol Records decided to put a halt on the production of the Driving Rain album in order to include Freedom as a bonus track. Due to this last-minute change, no mention of the song is made in the CD booklet as it was too late to reprint it. Instead, it was promoted on a hype sticker affixed to the front of the CD jewel case, something that I'm sure can take a copy of Driving Rain if you have this sticker from $7 to $8. Let's just have a quick listen to the single. This is my right A right given by God To live a free life To live in freedom Talking about McCartney performed this song on his 2002 Driving USA tour and it appeared on the live album back in the US. However, he chose not to perform the song on subsequent tours, such as his 2005 The US Tour, due to the newly acquired militaristic interpretation of the song. Shock horror, Paul. A militaristic interpretation of freedom? Who would have guessed it? But things got even worse in terms of Bushisms, because you know not only was it part of the rhetoric used by Bush on TV at the time, but there was also Operation Iraqi Freedom. In response to this new interpretation of the song, that totally wasn't a new interpretation of the song, McCartney stated, and I thought it was a great sentiment, and immediately post 9-11, I thought it was the right sentiment, you know, but it got hijacked and it got a bit of a militaristic meaning attached to it. You found Mr. Bush using that idea a lot in a way. I felt it altered the meaning of the song. McCartney also performed the song at the Super Bowl XXXVI pre-game show with a Statue of Liberty tapestry rising up in the background as tribute to the victims of the attacks. This is a great show, I suggest you go and check out this clip if you can. I've been playing a lot of clips already, I'm not going to play a clip of this one. Uh, if you do get to see that, you will see that he's joined on stage by like 500 children, each representing the 180 countries who televised the event. Also, I'm aware that it's not XXXVI, I just can't tell which Roman numeral that is. Is it like 30... 36, something like that. I hope so. Someone comment down below. But yeah, anyway, that has been our section where we've talked about Paul McCartney's connection to 
one of the worst events in human history. Certainly one of the most impactful. Like we still live in a post 9-11 world, even if maybe mem members of the younger generation don't even know that. You know, even I, a, a guy shockingly approaching 30 at an incredible speed, can remember, you know, getting on an airplane with relative ease and lack of a fuss and taking on whatever you wanted. And then suddenly family holidays after 2001 were very strict, very proper. There was a lot of hush-hush and quietness and making sure everything was done correctly. You know, these are, are just ubiquitous everyday parts of life now, but they all changed with events like this. And it is insane that Paul was there to witness it and be a part of it and to respond to it. It's crazy content for me to cover on this podcast. I mean, who would have thought that doing a, a Paul McCartney podcast would have me talking about a topic as solemn and as serious as this? Still, I really do appreciate that Paul did do something at this time. It really is a testament to his character. And, you know, it's, of course, very McCartney that he stuck to his modus operandi and decided to take a sad song and make it better. You know, he literally wrote a new song for the occasion. It's not like he just threw a bunch of money at the problem. I mean, freedom is hardly going to be in anyone's top 10, top 20, top 50, or even top 100 Paul McCartney songs. But it's the thought that counts. And it's clear that the residents and service people of New York were certainly in his thoughts. And he's certainly a lot more popular with them to this day. Like Paul is still massive in New York. He's as big in New York as he is in L.A. You know, there's always footage of him at like Yankee Stadium and stuff with him like waving to the camera and the crowd going wild. They still do love Paul. Maybe he didn't gain as much cred as The Who did that day, but, you know, Paul's still Paul. Let's, let, let's not quibble here, folks. Um, but, yeah, in all seriousness, Paul did do a good deed here. He didn't have to give anything back, and yet he still gave it his all and helped in his own way to ease the trauma that America was feeling at this time. So, that concludes the majority of the content for this episode, but for the sake of making parts one and two reasonably around the same length, we're going to continue with this not-so-quick catch-up and just throw in a couple of other things that Paul was doing around this time that don't really fit into any of this or next week's categories, Plus, I kind of want to end the episode on some stuff that's a little more upbeat. And so we'll start off with a discussion of Paul's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If you recall, on part one of the Flowers in the Dirt episode, we covered the Beatles being inducted as a band. You know, they are now Hall of Fame alumni as a band as well as the controversy surrounding Paul famously not attending their induction ceremony. Well, it was now time for him, as a solo act, as a solo artist, to be recognised for all of his success, influence, import and genius since the Beatles broke up. Now, it's not uncommon for an artist to be inducted multiple times into the Hall of Fame. Why, you have Jeff Beck, Johnny Carter, Eric Clapton, David Crosby, Peter Gabriel, Dave Grohl, George Harrison, Michael Jackson, Carole King, John Lennon, 
Curtis Mayfield, Clyde McFatter, Graham Nash, Stevie Nicks, Jimmy Page, Lou Reed, Greg Rolly, Paul Simon, Ringo Starr, Rod Stewart, Stephen Stills, Sammy Strain, Tina Turner, Ronnie Wood and Neil Young, having all been inducted twice into the Hall of Fame. Actually, Eric Clapton has been inducted a total of three times. So yeah, this is something that has kind of been expected to have happened eventually. The Beatles were inducted as a part of the original class of artists in 88, and McCartney was not recognised until 1998. This means Paul's contribution to rock and roll would not be officially recognised as being significant for a decade. So, why did it take until 1998? Well, first of all, I imagine that the Hall of Fame committee, or whoever decides who is being inducted, did not want to have a Beatle inducted too close to the last one. Lennon himself was inducted as a solo artist in 94, you know, despite not being relevant since the first half of the 70s, which meant that Paul was not going to be eligible for quite some time, something that I know would have irked Paul immensely. And then you have the fact that Paul's position within the rock intelligentsia was not at its highest in the 80s. But it would have made sense that after the success of Flowers of the Dirt and the World Tour and the New World Tour to honour him then. But it seems like maybe the Hall of Fame may have wanted to wait until he had a proper hit album, a.k.a. Flaming Pie, to give him such an honour. Also... Let's get real here. I don't mean to sound too cynical, but there's also a part of me that thinks that the Hall of Fame may have been punishing Paul for not showing up for the induction of the Beatles. That's pure speculation, but I think it has some legs. Also, there's another part of me that thinks that whether they were holding an award off on Paul or not, you know, intentionally, Part of the reason that they inducted Paul in 1998 was, well, because Linda died. I think it was a nice thing for the Hall of Fame to do, to get Paul out and about again. And so they did it. I can't prove it, but it's part of my hunch. Anyway, enough of my wild speculation. Let's now listen to the speech of the person who did indeed induct Paul McCartney into the Hall of Fame as a solo artist... It's Neil Young. When I first heard the Beatles uh, back there in the 60s somewhere, uh, first thing that I noticed was uh, that uh, I might be able to do this kind of thing myself. And... Uh, so the first song I ever sang was a Beatles song. I sang, uh, give me money, that's what I want. <laughs> sang at the school cafeteria and it didn't go over that good, so we tried, it won't be long, yeah. And that was, that was better. But uh, the Beatles meant a lot to me and Paul, Paul's music, uh, and particularly his bass playing at that time, was uh, something... Uh, that a lot of the bands were, were very impressed with Paul's bass playing. Not only that he played left-handed, but he, he really played 
you know, I couldn't even really, you know, I only knew two chords, so I was very impressed at the time. But uh, as time went by, and the Beatles got huge, and I joined a Springfield, and Stills and I were listening to A Day in the Life, and we're listening to the last note of A Day in the Life, and listening to Paul's vocals, and John's vocals, and the great things that George did to the record, and, and uh, so it was just like a marriage of, uh, of all this talent coming together and creating this incredible thing, which none of us could really fathom at the time. And we were just trying to uh, do our thing, you know, in the shadow of this great thing that had happened uh, between the Beatles and the Stones and, uh, and the Who. And, and uh, so I just kept on going, and uh, eventually the Beatles broke up, and, and then... Uh, about the same time, I, I broke up myself. And uh, so I started a solo career, one of the pieces. And uh, that's the same time as Paul came out with his first solo album, the one on uh, Apple Records with Maybe I'm Amazed on it. Which I loved that record because uh, it was so simple. And there was so much to, uh, there was so much to, 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 to see and to hear. It was just Paul. I mean, it was so... There was no adornment at all. There was no echo. There was nothing. There was no attempt made to, to uh, compete with, with the things that he'd already done. And uh, so out he stepped from the shadow of the Beatles. And there he was. And, uh, and it uh, kind of blew my mind. And uh, I said, well, maybe I could do this too, you know. So, <laughs> try that. So I made a simple record that didn't have any echo on them for a while. And, anyway make a long story short, I knew Linda a long time ago, and, and, uh, and we were all very happy when, when Linda and Paul got together, and, and they had such a wonderful family, they have such a wonderful family, and, uh, and I felt close to them over the years, and I have a lot of respect for Paul McCartney as a man uh, for holding together a great family through the, uh, the times of rock and roll, and through all of the success, and through all of the swirling. Uh, I have a lot of respect for that. And the rest of it is, you all know it, uh, he's just a great songwriter, one of the greatest songwriters uh, perhaps ever. I think he'll be remembered uh, hundreds of years from now for the work that he did, uh, starting with yesterday and continuing on to today and tomorrow, hopefully. So, roll a tape. Uh, Without the Beatles, rock and roll as we know it would not exist. Without Paul McCartney, there would have been no Beatles. In a single year, McCartney wrote and recorded Hey Jude, Blackbird, Helter Skelter, The Long and Winding Road, Let It Be, Get Back, and still had time to knock off Come and Get It back in the USSR and Maybe I'm Amazed. With his solo career, McCartney continued to dominate radio. He wrote big ballads like My Love, rock and roll hits like Junior's Farm and Jet. He even got banned by the BBC for the political message of Give Ireland Back to the Irish. 
and he continues to push himself forward creatively. With Liverpool Oratorio and Standing Stone, he moved into classical composition, while the acclaimed Flaming Pie showed his rock and roll heart is still beating strong. His partner in all of this was his wife, Linda. Theirs was a great love story. McCartney always maintained that his greatest accomplishment was not the Beatles or his knighthood or being the most successful songwriter of the century. His greatest accomplishment was the family he and Linda raised. With John Lennon and then with Linda, Paul McCartney has remained true to one message above all others. In the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Well, that was awesome. And shout out to Young for spending so much time talking about the McCartney album. And I also like the inclusion, actually, of Little Willow in that presentation at the end there. But you know what? It's now time to hear from the Big Mac himself. Let's hear his acceptance speech. It gives me great pleasure to be here tonight to induct Paul McCartney into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Thank you. Thank you, America. Thank you, Neil. I love Neil. Okay. Well, unlike those other guys, I haven't got a speech. So this should be fun. I'm making it up. Um, yeah, man. Well, here we are in the Waldorf Hotel in New York. And, uh, you know, this is like brilliant for me. It's brilliant stroke sad, of course, because, um, you know, I would like my baby to share this with me. She wanted this. Um, yeah. Um, but it's beautiful, you know, she's beautiful, it's all beautiful, and we're cool. So, um, I'll tell you what I want to do, actually. I want to get my date up here, my date for this evening. I want to call her up. Come on, baby, come and share this with me. It's my little baby, Stella. Come on. Get up here. And she didn't know I was going to do this, so she's going to be highly embarrassed. But I don't care. A friend of ours had these baby booties on her, on her baby, and it said, 50% mommy, 50% daddy. Well, here she is. All right, baby. She doesn't give a shit, right? These young people, you know, they've just got no fear. Um, 
Okay, listen, so really what I just want to say, what, what we want to say is I love rock and roll because it made my life. Uh, by, by the way, while we're here, I mean, you got me, you got John in this. Okay, what about George and Ringo? Yeah. Come on, guys. Come on. I love rock and roll, I say. I, I love Cleveland. Because Cleveland gave me Linda's mom, who was from Cleveland. All right. Yeah. Cleveland. And I love New York because New York gave me Linda. So I want to say to you all, thank you very, very much. And uh, this one's for you, baby. Now, the first thing that should be noted about that clip, particularly if you've never seen the visuals before, is what Stella McCartney, his daughter, is wearing at the event. Being such a notable figure in the world of fashion, it's no surprise that this occasion would be another chance for her to express herself via her clothing, and that is exactly what she did. Adorned across her white crop top are the words, About fucking time. Now, I don't think we need a psychologist to work out what the meaning of that statement was, but let's just say that there was a certain bittersweetness to this award being bestowed upon Paul, especially at this time. Though, what I will say is that it's nice to see someone taking a pot shot at this silly-ass award ceremony. You know, the whole thing's just a big sham of a club, and is mostly just a money-making venture in its own right. You do have to pay to be there. And so the fact that someone named McCartney's daughter making a mockery of how long it took for him to get this stupid honour that means nothing in the first place is pretty hilarious. He's winning the award, she is immune, and she's exploiting that immunity today to say, fuck you. And I think that's the best thing ever. Secondly, I've read quite a few comments saying that Paul was drunk or that he was unprofessional and how disappointing the speech was. But... What a lot of the negative Nellies commenting on this clip are failing to realise is how unbelievably sad he likely was at this time. He was still deep in his grief. He had not come out of his shell yet. He was not being seen at parties or anything. And, you know, for him to come out of his, his deep depression and accept a pointless self-congratulatory award is something that must have been incredibly difficult for Paul, you know, for him to put on his brave face. And he was just being as normal and charming as he could have been in this situation. I honestly find it quite hard to watch, knowing how much pain he would have been in at the time. And then, oh my God, he goes ahead and mentions the fact that Linda really wanted him to get that award. And you can see him fighting back the tears in, the, in that moment, folks. You really can. There was also a very short essay on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame website about the induction, and I just want to read it quickly. It says, You probably know Paul McCartney's music. I mean, who doesn't? From the songs he penned in his days as one quarter of the Beatles, through his solo work and his hits with Wings, 
his presence on the airwaves has been continuous. Perhaps you think of him in quick-cut aural images. I saw her standing there and yesterday, band on the run and silly love songs, my brave face and hope of deliverance. These intercut with visual impressions of Paul in a collarless suit in the 60s or giving his trademark thumbs up at the end of a set in the early 90s. Now, what I love about this essay is that, unlike the actual Hall of Fame, it acknowledges Paul's 80s and early 90s work, which was totally fab. But then I saw who wrote it and it all makes sense. It was written by none other than Alan Cozen, who you may know from the Things We Said Today podcast, as well as the Up Close show that we did on this podcast a few months ago. Yes, it's always nice to see Alan out there in the wild. But yeah, that is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's a very small moment in Paul's career in the long term and hardly amongst his greatest accolades. But the fact that it meant so much to Linda means that it's likely one of the most personal wins of his career. Pressing on, and around this time we get Paul releasing his first book of paintings. Yes, despite John being the art student Beatle, it is our man Paul who has truly dedicated a fair portion of his life to the arts, and particularly painting. I mean, go back to him designing album covers for Sgt Pepper and Egypt Station, the fact that he's accrued an art collection of Marguerite's, Matisse's, Picasso's and Renoir's over 30 million, making references to Van Gogh on the Pipes of Peace album cover, singing about Picasso and spending 40 years painting. Yeah, you know, folks, Paul is a very artistic, artsy, fartsy dude. Now, of course, it's the final point on this list that was going to be the focus of this book. Paul began painting in earnest as early as 83, but it wasn't until 99 that he decided to release Paul McCartney Paintings, the first ever collection of his artistic work. That's not, you know, music. There have been subsequent books of Paul's paintings, but this was really something quite special at the time. We'd already seen Paul's poetry, we'd already seen his dance music and classical orchestrations, we'd even seen a movie of his. But this really was a new form, a new outlet, a new type of expression for him to put himself out there. And, you know, for him to do so is a riskier and more vulnerable move than any of those other art forms. This is totally outside of his wheelhouse. And for him to expose himself like this was an incredibly brave thing to do. As I said, we all know that John was the art student and he was supposedly the avant-garde Beatle and the poetic Beatle. And so once again, Paul was at a great risk here of being labelled a copycat, you know, copying John being a painter. But, you know, fuck it, Paul did it. because Just because John did something doesn't mean Paul can't do it and maybe even do it better. If anything, I find it quite liberating that Paul, in his later life, is truly starting to branch out like this. It's it, it's just interesting. Come on. There's a quote from the Boston Globe that perfectly illustrates his lightbulb moment that got him into this art form. It reads, I always wanted to paint, but I really felt inhibited because I only thought art school trained artists were allowed to paint. When I turned 40, I was able to watch Willem de Kooning paint. I was looking at a painting of what I thought was a purple mountain. Not wanting to ask a dumb question, I still asked, So Bill, what is it? 
And he replied, I don't know. Looks like a couch, huh? This may not seem like the greatest revelatory moment ever, but it really was a pivotal moment for Paul, as the open-minded shrug from Kooning told Paul that it really didn't matter what the final interpretation of a painting was. It assured him that painting could be a very forgiving endeavour, you know, in terms of artwork, that, you know, the fact that people come up with their own interpretations and that every meaning's different for everyone else and there are no real standards is a lot more open and, quote-unquote, free than even music, which does have set rhythms and patterns and formulas that you do have to work around. This was something that Paul could be even more expressive in. Paul McCartney Paintings is a large, ornate book that contains over 70 of Paul's paintings that he first exhibited in Siegen, Germany, in the July of 1999. You also get a boatload of complimentary photographs taken by the lovely Linda that show Paul at work and, of course, vamping for the camera, as well as a detailed interview with McCartney himself. The artwork itself is as diverse as his discography, as intriguing as the man himself, and the imagery is actually pretty darn striking. I know that this could seem like a vanity project, but that didn't happen. You know, I, I really doubt MPL would have let Paul release such a work if it was genuinely bad or overblown, or, you know, I don't think he has those kind of yes men. The paintings are genuinely good. Paul is a good painter. It is expressive. It makes you think. He clearly puts a lot of thought behind it, even if it isn't maybe conscious thought. You know, it's not It's not an embarrassment, folks. This isn't like, you know, George Bush's paintings or anything like that. I actually picked up a copy of this for myself recently, and I'll certainly be doing an episode on it in the future. But what I'll say now on this work is that it's fucking awesome. Okay, spoiler alert, but I'm not going to sit here and say anything negative about this release. It's an opportunity to see Paul in a different light, you know, and and, and any chance to absorb him through a new perspective is always fun, and this is no different. But yeah, it, it's a cool book. Go and check it out if you can. Can't wait to cover it properly in the future. Moving swiftly on, and we have another appearance from Paul that I'd never heard of. Now, there was a TV special that was made in honour of Superman actor Christopher Reeve after the breaking of his spine, tragically. That was called Christopher Reeve's A Celebration of Hope. I haven't seen the thing in full, but I assume, with basic skills of deduction, that it's a show basically championing the bravery that Christopher Reeves has put forth in continuing his life after such a debilitating accident. Let's play the promo clip. The biggest names in entertainment are coming to ABC to celebrate the man who turned tragedy into triumph, Christopher Reeve. Let's be honest, given the circumstances, most of us would have blamed the horse. It's an unforgettable night of comedy, music, and entertainment. Christopher Reeve's Celebration of Hope, ABC Next Sunday. So I have skimmed through it. And yeah, it is exactly what it says on the tin. It's a very sappy TV variety show where everyone pays their tribute to the son of Krypton. There were other contributions and bits given in from Stevie Wonder, Gloria Estevan, Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, 
Willie Nelson and Robin Williams. It's very much not my cup of tea, but, you know, Paul can improve anything. And, you know, I'm so glad he did decide to continue being the pleasant chap that he is and contribute a song because, well, it's Calico Skies. Yes, Paul did play Calico Skies on later subsequent tours, but we had no Flaming Pie tour to talk about in this era. This is at like 97, 98. And we only have weird little avenues like this to see him plug the material live, you know, even after the release. It's cool that it exists. And what's even cooler is that the clip of him playing this song is separate entirely from the rest of the special, so we can listen to it right now. While the angels of love protect us From the innermost secrets we hide I'll hold you for as long as you like I'll hold you for as long as you like I'll love you for the rest of my For the rest of my appeared in a TV documentary series alongside, again, Stevie Wonder, again, Billy Joel, Bobby McFerrin, Quincy Jones, and Celine Dion called The Rhythm of Life. Now, you might be wondering, Sam, is this even worth mentioning? You know, oh, oh Paul has probably appeared as a talking head in innumerable documentaries. Well, not as much as it seems, because if you go ahead and, and actually watch the Rhythm of Life, which I actually did watch the first of the three episodes, you will quickly find out that it is hosted and written by none other than George fucking Martin. Yes, folks, in 1997, post-Flaming Pie, post-anthology, the Beatles' own fucking producer released a three-part docuseries where he looked into the three major elements of music, which are rhythm, melody and harmony. As a host, he is so absolutely magnanimous and electric, and you are just fixated on him and listening to all of his words of wisdom. You really are just hooked from the moment it gets going. Uh, it, it's just a stellar production. It's really insightful. I really appreciate how properly thought out it is in both theme and topic. And, I mean, just the fact that you get to spend so much time with George Martin, quality time, is the best treat ever. Folks, it's on YouTube, and so if you haven't already seen it, I cannot recommend it more enough. I mean, once you finish this podcast, obviously, go and check out the series The Rhythm of Life by George Martin. Oh, yeah, of course, there's loads of Paul in it, too. Ha! Next up, and we have Paul contributing a song to the 1999 Cameron Crowe film Vanilla Sky, as well as the subsequent soundtrack. The film itself was Crow's follow-up to both Jerry Maguire and Almost Famous, which also saw him re-team with Tom Cruise. This was a massive film. You know, this was a big summer event. And Paul getting a song on this film would only help to secure the gains he had made during the Fleming Pie era. And rather than, say, donating a track, he actually wrote a song specifically for the film and was apparently done with it in ten minutes. Some will probably say, yeah, I can tell. Because, you know, some reviews just write themselves. 
Now, I know I will come to this song one day in a Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode, but what I'll say for now is that it ain't the most ambitious or complex McCartney track ever, and it's certainly going to take a few more re-listens to worm its way into my ear, which isn't good for a song that's meant to be like heard once in a film, if you know what I mean. Like It's meant to kind of hook you straight away, and this song hasn't done that so far. Anyway, it was recorded in the June of 2001 at the Henson Recording Studio and was released on December 4th, 2011 on the Music From Vanilla Sky CD as well as a separate promo CD. Now, whilst the song hasn't necessarily grown on me massively, it doesn't mean the same couldn't be said for the overall music intelligentsia of the time, as they actually showered this one with accolades. The song was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song, uh, an Academy Award for Best Original Song, and the Critics' Choice Movie Award for Best Song, winning the latter, which, considering that this was during Paul's post-anthology, post-Flaming Pie resurgence, it isn't that surprising, but it's still an incredible validation of Paul's ongoing cultural relevancy. He would actually go on to play Vanilla Sky at the 2001 Oscars ceremony, and it sounded a little something like this. Sky. 
Also around this time, we got the original Paul McCartney Live in the Cavern performance. This is the one where he plays all of the pre-Beatles rock and roll classics, you know, during the kind of Run Devil Run period. Something we're going to touch on in the next episode of this miniseries, as well as do a film review slash gig review of the film that Jeff won for film for Paul at the Cavern. Um, I could have sworn we'd already done that as an episode, but I think I'm thinking of the interview I did with Paul Dugdale, who filmed the 2020 Cavern gig. Yeah, very confusing. Go out and check the episode two, of course. And the last thing to happen in 1999, December to be precise, is where Paul made his interview debut on the TV talk show Parkinson. This might not mean much to any foreign listeners, but to any Brit over the age of 25, Parkinson was one of the biggest most acclaimed, most revered British talk show hosts of all time, and he commanded only the best and biggest guests. So naturally, Paul goes on, and basically, he's just his charming self for about 20 minutes or so. What more do you want? This is specifically the one where he plays Two Fingers, uh, slash When the Wind is Blowing, which we mentioned in our semi-recent Rupert the Bear episode, as well as our Kanye West episode. It is a classic McCartney interview, and like The Rhythm of Life, it is on YouTube for free, so I recommend you go check it out ASAP. Moving on to a new year and a new millennium, and we have Paul winning another award, this time from The Enemy, aka The New Musical Express, on the 1st of February 2000. Paul received the award for Best Band Ever. Best Band Ever, on behalf of the Beatles, in person at this award show which you know would have totally annoyed the folks over at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, especially since, it, you know, the opposite is here. Paul is without the other two Beatles and the Yoko. But yeah, this is still a pretty cool win. Like, you know, this isn't Artist of the Year or anything. This is Best Artist of All Time. All Time! And even at this point, the enemy are still pretty cool, pretty relevant at the time. And I'm sure Paul did enjoy the honour, or at least adding it to his large collection of honours. On accepting the Best Band of All Time Award, he said, I couldn't make it to the Brit Awards, but this is better anyway. And he also said, Can I thank John, George, Ringo, and thank you, God? Paul later told the NME.com, It feels great, particularly because the readers voted for it, and because it's so long after we were playing, you know. It's astonishing to see the influence is still there. It's fantastic. Also at this award, when Paul was asked if there were any other bands he would give it to, the other two he mentioned, actually, were Nirvana and the Beach Boys, which is absolutely awesome. What a contrast there. But what's better is that he did kind of recant that and say he would have to give it still to the Beatles, a.k.a. himself, because they were a fine little group. Speaking of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, no, we are not done with them. On March 6th, 2000, Paul would be back there. No, not for Wings induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, something that to this day still hasn't happened and would mean that Paul would be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame three times up there would be with Eric Clapton. But, oh well, let's hope for the future, hope for deliverance, you know, all that kind of thing. And, yeah, Paul wouldn't be there as an inductee, but as an inductor, this time for James Taylor. As I'm sure most of you know, James Taylor is a seminal folk guitarist and songwriter, and certainly of the few worthy enough for having Mr. McCartney induct them into the sham that is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Fittingly, it was the final induction of the evening, and it went a little something like this. 
Thank you. Oh, I stop it. Sit down. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric and Robbie, for that. That was something else. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, I haven't got any big, long speech. You'll probably be glad to hear. Um, I'm just going to remember a couple of things from way, way ago in the 60s when we were starting a new record label called Apple before it was a computer. And um, we were looking for talent, so we sent out this message, come, O ye talented ones, unto us. And they, well, a few of them did. Uh, there's a lot of others came along with it, too. But um, it was a great time. It was a crazy time. And uh, my friend Peter Asher one day came to the office, and he showed up. He said, uh, I've got this guy from New York. He said, go on, come on, let's have a listen to it, you know. And um, for once, it was someone really great, uh, which we, I must say we didn't really expect. But uh, it was this kind of haunting guy who could really play the guitar and really sing beautifully. And as I found out later, he'd, um, he'd been through a lot of troubles just recently, and he'd pulled himself out of them all. And he got over from New York, straightened himself out, and got to England. And um, we were just lucky to run into him. He was lucky to run into us, I suppose. And he started singing. And um, it was just so beautiful that right there and then we said, OK, he's on Apple. And so he was one of our very first artists on Apple. So, as I say, I'm not going to go on too much about him except to say that I love him. And he's a really beautiful guy. And we had a lot of good times back then. I think. <laughs> we, we did. We did. And um, I'm just very honored to, uh, this evening to induct him into the rhythm and blues, rock and roll, ballad, jazz, slow foxtrot, Awards here tonight. Uh, you know, you've got to do all those categories because we all know, you know, you can't really call it one thing. Rock and roll is too sort of slim for, for what's been going on tonight. So uh, it's too deep, you know. Let's face it, you know, the thing, I think the trouble about these occasions really is you can't put it into words. It's what Eric and Robbie just did and what James is about to do um, and what Bonnie did and Melissa is really why we're all in it. You know, we're not really words people. Um, we're singers, man. Players and stuff. So uh, anyway, I just want to thank everyone uh, who voted for him. And it's my honor to induct him. But first of all, we're going to have a look at a clip. <laughs> yes, James. Okay, so uh, I'm proud of this guy, and it's my great honor this moment, uh, along with the fact that his kids and his mom and his girlfriend are in the audience, and we're all proud. So I'd like to now induct James Taylor into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Come on, sir.
Then on May 25th, 2000, Sir Paul led the list of BMI UK songwriters honoured at that year's Ivor Novella Awards, Britain's highest honours given to songwriters. McCartney received the Fellowship of the British Academy of Composers and Songwriters. This was the first of this award that the Academy had ever given out, actually. And he was cited as a true giant of the world's songwriters and composers. Of course, this is not Paul's first either. After having shared numerous awards with John and Yesterday being the most outstanding song of 1965. However, not only was this an award that was basically made up just to say how badass Paul is, but it was also a recognition of his work as a Beatle and a solo artist together. This must have been a real treat for Paul, as he was clearly very nostalgic during the event. He said, I remember coming here for the very first time with my mates John, George and Ringo, and sitting back there. It was just fantastic to be part of the whole songwriting thing. It was always just the greatest award, the greatest thing to get for songwriters, and it still is many years later. Next up, in the October of 2000, we had the release of the Beatles anthology book. Of course, a huge part of the background of our last proper episode, Flaming Pie, was, of course, the Beatles anthology. Though, bearing in mind, the first album came out in 1995, and it wasn't until five years later that the accompanying text was released. Of course, this would never happen with modern Beatles merch. Hell, there would have been a full coffee table book for each release if it was today, each with different colours and, you know, sleeves and shit. But no, Anthology carries on over into the new millennia and it goes straight to number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. As we know, this is no mean feat and it was another affirmation that Beatlemania truly wasn't dead. The book itself features more than 1,200 rare photos and colourful illustrations. It includes interviews with all four band members and others involved, most notably George Martin, Derek Taylor, Mal Evans, Neil Aspinall, you know, all the regular faces. Many of the uh, interviews are those seen in the movie and some especially just for the book. Uh, Lennon's passages are accumulated from various archives and sources. And yeah, I'm kind of rubbing my thumbs together here. I haven't actually read this book. Uh, I've still only got the anthology on CD. I still need it on DVD. I, I, I need to download it, to be fair. I just want to watch it more. Um, yeah, folks, there is going to be an anthology series that I eventually get around to one day. So I'm sure we will talk about the book and give the book its fair dues at that point. But yeah, the most important part is another success for Paul, another bit of cash. And finally, during this time, Paul also recorded with the Blockheads, the backing group for Ian Jury, on a tribute album called Ian Jury, Brand New Boots and Panties, which was released on April 9th, 2001. The cover that he performed with them was a track called I'm Partial to Your Abracadabra, and it's 100% going to be the quote-unquote hidden track at the end of this episode. Stick around. Speaking of the end of the episode, folks... Yeah, there we are. We are done. That is everything I have to say about Driving Rain in under three hours. Yeah, I'm sorry that this has been a bit of a serious episode. There hasn't been a, a lot of chance for me to do my goofy riffing and bad comedy. But, you know, I think we've covered a lot of important topics. I think we've crashed through a bunch of barriers that we had to get to. Eventually, some were put off, some were met head on. But I think we've I think we've all learned a lot. I've had a lot of fun doing this one, and I hope you have too. I do apologise that this episode's been a little bit late. Uh, I'm doing a lot more work at the moment. I had a recent promotion, yada, yada, yada. Boss is ill, boss has been fired, whatever. 
basically I'm picking up lots of shifts and I've just been burnt out folks I've just been genuinely burnt out and so I'm, I'm gonna be taking my time with this little series I'm not gonna be trying to do one a week that kind of thing I'm just gonna take things a little bit easy and just make sure that this driving rain series is gonna live up to all the hype that I gave it but yeah that's part one down part two we're gonna be looking at all of the musical stuff Paul was doing in this period, yes, he didn't just record a cover of I'm Partial to Your Abracadabra. Uh, and after we've covered all the music, we're going to go through everyone who worked on Driving Rain, the sessions of Driving Rain itself, the criticism, the advertising for it, the album cover, you know, all the shtick by now. Yep, that will all be covered next time. And until then, peace and love, peace and love. Harry, Harry Krishna, play us out, Denny.
abracadabra. Whoa.